At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. I have with me Dr. Matt Meyer, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at UVA, that's the University of Virginia, and he has done some really interesting work and gotten really interested in healthcare's impact on health. And we'll talk about that, but this is a little bit more that we touched on before in a prior episode talking about the environmental impact of anesthesia, but we're going to come at it with Matt from a little bit more of a cycle thinking about how the environmental impact of what we do actually has an effect on the systems we work in and how maybe those systems can be changed to improve the overall impact that we're having. So I think it's going to be really interesting. Matt, is the founder or the co-founder of a company called Periop Green LLC. And we'll talk about that, and we'll just put that out there as a disclosure that obviously you'll hear more about it, but his company is involved in this space, and so that may influence how you think about what he has to say. But I think it's going to be really interesting. And certainly we're not selling anything of Matt's, and nor I think is he selling anything yet. So um, anyway, you'll hear about that. But Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, this is a show that I listen to very frequently, so... I feel honored to be among some of the guests and hope I meet expectations. Awesome. Well, thank you. So why don't you start by telling us a little about you, both you know, who you are, how you got where you are, what your practice looks like, and we'll go from there. All right. Well, I'm an anesthesiologist and an intensive care doctor. I work in the operating rooms at the University of Virginia, as well as um, in the CTICU. Um, I come from Vermont, and I do think that that has part has something to play with how I ended up doing research and working in the world of sustainable healthcare. Uh, I have a lot of fun spending time with my wife and my two children. I spend a ton of time outdoors. I'm a gardener. I exercise, try to run in the woods as frequently as I can, and and all of those sort of have blended together to to bring me to this position to spending a lot of my time researching healthcare's impact on health and really trying to look at how my practice, my clinical practice has an impact um, through waste and through pollution, through inefficiency, and how I can you know have have an outside impact on that and thus improve improve the world in those ways. That's fantastic. So it sounds like your interest in this area came from kind of a love of the outdoors and the environment and and then thinking about how we can try to contribute in a positive way to that. 
That's definitely part of it. I think I was thinking back as to where this really came from is I remember as an early anesthesia resident, just sit, you know, you spend so much time in those operating rooms and just looking at the garbage that we would generate while, um, you know, even before the surgery started, we'd fill bags of garbage and just being like, just for me, I've always been focused on, you know, minimizing my waste and being like, how can I be a part of this system and also, you know, stay true to my, my inclination towards waste reduction and not throwing out everything. And it eventually morphed into this interest. Very neat. And so tell me a little bit about how that informed the company. And maybe we should start by tell us a little about the company. What is Periop Green LLC and, and how did your interest lead you to found this or co-found it? Sure. So, so Periop Green, it's, a, it's an early stage company and really it's more of this point, you know, sort of an once uh, connected to the research that I'm doing. And the research that I'm doing is trying to understand how to reduce the waste in the operating room. You know, we all spend time and we look at it and we know, we like, we know that we throw out millions of tons of garbage from the operating room each year uh, collectively. How can we get that? Cause we're never going to get it to zero, but how can we get it and make it better? And so I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years really digging into this and trying to understand everything from recycling um, to waste reduction to, you know, substituting different materials. And after really digging through this, I decided that the most meaningful and probably the simplest way is to simply not use what we don't need to use. And I know this sounds, it sounds a little, a little circular in its logic, but I was inspired really by uh, Dr. Karina Zagarakis, who's a, a neurosurgeon. I think she was a resident when she published this paper, but she looked at she and her colleagues looked at the items in neurosurgery that were opened onto the scrub table, but unused with their conclusion being that over the course of a year, their neurosurgical department could save $2.9 million if they simply didn't open what they didn't use. And that's real money. And those are real things. And so, you know, the, the idea was why, why are we allowing this level of inefficiency? You know, $2.9 million to anybody is a lot of money. And even if it's half that, it's still a lot of money. And the question is, is why are we letting that happen? Especially if that's happening in one department, we know it's happening throughout the hospital and probably all health systems. And so I basically sat on that concept for a while and, you know, it had, it's part of, been part of my presentations and I've talked about it and kept waiting for someone to do something about it. And eventually, I actually had two wonderful undergraduates who are now part of this project with me. And they came to me and they wanted to essentially, they, they were working, they, they were coming and trying to do essentially her study in an analog fashion and basically repeat it with different um, operating rooms and different types of surgeons and seeing if the waste still existed there. This just happened to coincide with COVID when we weren't letting another soul into the hospital that wasn't, you know, clinically oriented. And so we realized very quickly that it wasn't possible for them to come in and do that and collect it and count it. But we thought, why can't we do this in an automated fashion? And so we've spent the last year working on figuring out how to make this happen automatically. And, and again, 
it's been a process and we're trying to use uh, optics in the operating room, cameras and advanced computer analytics, computer vision to figure out how we can assess what's used and what's not used on the surgical scrub table, all while respecting the nuances of the operating room, which involves you know, privacy and sterility and really just being out of the way. And, and it's, and it's like, it's been about 13 months at this point. Uh, we're on quite an adventure and we're learning a ton and we've got a prototype that's, you know, being able to identify objects at this point, we're looking to grow and make it better. The company really is just, it's just there. So we have it to eventually license our technology, but really it's mostly research at this point. And and I've been blown away at the types of people I've been able to, and, and I say I, it's definitely a we, we've been able to bring into this and who are interested in this and who who understand that the waste that we generate in the hospital isn't sustainable. And whether they're attracted to it from a financial perspective or from a sustainability and environmental perspective, there's just great energy to make the operating rooms run better. And so that's that's really what we're trying to do. Very cool. So it sounds like this technology, when it comes to fruition or already at some point, at some level, could identify how much stuff is getting opened but not used, which I would imagine could then lead to being able to say, well, if we look over time, let's say we pick a surgery, you know, appendectomy, and we look over time and we say, you know, 99% of the time, these 10 things are getting opened and not used, then that allows the hospital to say, you know what, let's no longer open these things. And then not only have you identified things, but you've made an impact both on waste in terms of cost and waste in terms of the environment. And and that's exactly it. It's, it's a concept that we just can't, we can't effectively measure this unless you're putting, you know, doing it in an analog fashion, which involves probably the circulating nurse at the end of the case you know, when, you know, honestly, the circulating nurse probably has more demanding things to do with his or her time, um, things that are clinically oriented. And while it's an important administrative concept to reduce waste, like we know that all of us are there for the patient at that moment. So our goal is to take this, put it in the background, and then in aggregate over time, provide exactly that information. And maybe it's not 99%, but maybe it's, you know, one out of five, and we can store it in the clean core as opposed to opening it. Something, right. you know, really help people reframe um, the, the materials used in the operating room. Right. And it's complicated, right? Because you could imagine there are some things, and I don't, obviously, I'm familiar much more with the anesthesia side than I am with what's on the scrub text table. But thinking about the anesthesia side, you might say, wow, you know, you guys are opening uh, and mixing up epinephrine for a lot of cases, and you're hardly ever using it. But maybe we feel, and maybe not, but maybe we feel like there are at least some cases where even though I'm probably not going to use it, if I need it, I need it ready and I can't be going to get it and mix it up. So there might be times where, you know, you have to find that threshold. Maybe there are times where it's rarely used, but still worth having. And then, so that's one thing that comes to mind. And then there's another where, you know, one obvious answer for medications is to have pre-drawn syringes that don't expire for several months. So you've got it. I've got my my pre-made up epi syringe in my drawer but if i don't use it it doesn't go to waste it just stays and for the next couple months it can stay in that drawer and if somebody needs it they need it and then but then that leads to a question of how much time money and effort has to go into making those syringes and how that balances out so there's a lot of pieces to it but i think what you're saying which is so important is that you can't deal with any of those decisions until you have the data 
as to what is, is and is not being opened and used. And so that's what, that's where you're starting. And, and that's exactly it. it. The first step is just to understand it, to understand, you know, is, is it really even a problem? I, I mean, I believe it. And almost everyone I talk to, <laughs> it resonates in some degree. Um, we actually did a survey of our surgeons and it's unpublished, but it's probably around 25% um, of the items there. The sur- a surgeon's estimate was in aggregate. They said it was about 25% of the items that are open go unused on the surgical table. So we think that it's, we think it's a real problem, but we're looking to identify if it's a real problem and we're looking to identify where it is and then to work, you know, and these, these, this problem is complicated as exactly you put it like, Clinical situations are not as simple as yes or no. There, there's many shades of gray inside of this. And so we're willing to work with it. But first step is to have this data and have it be relatively unimpeachable. Awesome. All right. Let's talk a minute about desflurane. And I say this because you recently published an article advocating for a complete stop of the use of desflurane. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how did you land on that specifically? And then tell me about, you know, the, well, we'll get to that, but start with what got you writing that article. Sure. So, so where I trained, um, we did not use much desflurane. Um, but while I was there and while I was getting this, developing this interest in the concept of um, sustainable healthcare and really specifically looking at it with, from a, the lens of an anesthesiologist, I made sure that um, I was doing a little bit of reading and I'm trying to dig up the articles we're talking. And it's McNeil et al. It was plant, published in Lancet Planetary Health. And this was in like 2017, somewhere in that ballpark. Here it is. And this was carbon footprinting the operating rooms. And so I was expecting the carbon footprint of the operating room to largely be energy or to be all the supplies that we use. And I was blown away that two out of three of the institutions, um, two out of three of the institutions where they did a complete carbon footprint of the operating room, over 50% of the footprint was volatile anesthetics in these two institutions. Mm. And then the third institution uh, where the carbon footprint of anesthetic gases was 4%, uh, I, I instantly dug into this to try to figure out what was the difference between them. And the biggest difference was high desflurane usage. And then once you dig even further into it, you learn that desflurane and all volatile anesthetics are tremendously bad greenhouse gases. But desflurane is exceptional in that regard, in that it's if the benchmark, so the way in which we benchmark greenhouse gases and greenhouse gases being chemicals that get emitted to the atmosphere that then trap energy. We benchmark them to carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide always has a unit of one. So desflurane over a 20 year perspective is 3,700 times worse than carbon dioxide over the same 20 years. And once I learned that and the fact that we have a relatively equivalent um, you know, options in terms of sevoflurane and propofol, even as a smaller carbon footprint, it seemed very obvious to me that we don't need desflurane. And I know I get in trouble every time I say that. And in the article, there are definitely moments where you can justify the usage of desflurane. But in terms of putting it as a need, and when you start to really look at it in terms of its impact on the global environment, uh, 
and you start to factor in the cost of climate change, the cost to human health, the cost to our economy from the changes that are occurring, it's really hard to justify um, its usage relative to its alternatives that have less impact. Okay. Yeah. And so when you talk about the different options, I mean, there are, of course, others, but in general, I think most people are, at least in this country, are going to be familiar with isofluorine, sevofluorine, and desfluorine. Those are kind of the three most sure. common that found on our anesthesia machines. So we don't have to go into the specific details of each one, but is it fair to say that isofluorine, a little slower onset, a little slower offset, a little longer lasting, sevo and des very similar They've got some differences. Desflurane obviously has to be in a, a heated pressurized vaporizer and all that stuff. But when we talk about the two, what what would be there are obvious times where you would use sevoflurane over des, like inhaled inductions. But mm-hmm. when you mentioned that there might be times where you would justifiably maybe decide to use desflurane over sevo, what would those be? So I, I had a wonderful reviewer who pushed me to really explore this, which I appreciated. Um, and you know. I'll tell you the moments that I think are most justified. So I learned this from my reviewers that in Japan, they do not seem to have significant recovery rooms, which was not, which was new to me. And I, I love learning about how our work is practiced elsewhere. And so in moments where you really have to get someone who's recovering faster and concerned with high turnover, that would be a moment where you could perhaps justify it. In moments where you're really concerned about, you know, keeping within regulation. Um, and when I say regulation, it's like you're working hours. You've paid for your nurses until five o'clock and you want to try to time it well. Isofluorine and sevoflurane are associated with a larger range in terms of their extubation. Desflurane is appropriate. I will say from clinical, when I talk to people, people talk about wanting rapid neuro exams. You know, so they like, they like desflurane for that purpose. All that said, um, you know, when you really dig into the literature, we're talking about a matter of minutes, and these are in standardized, randomized controlled trials where the protocol generally is you use the anesthetic until the last stitch is thrown or the dressing is on, and then you turn it off, which we all know is not really how we practice anesthesia. We're, we're, we're titrating, we're giving a little push of propofol, we're, we're, making the, we're making the timing work. But in those settings, it's usually about I think there was one meta-analysis that I quoted in my paper that was from, that was in uh, bariatric surgery. So with an obese patient population with desflurane really should be an excellent example of it. And I think it was about five minutes that they were responding to, responding to the anesthesiologist or the examiner quicker. I, I don't know if that is going to be a tremendously clinically meaningful um, number. And I also when we compare the, the number that, when I talk about the cost to the world about this pollution, it's, it's entitled, maybe not the best title, but it's called the social cost of carbon. And this is something you're hearing about in the news because our federal government is actually reevaluating how that factors into their decision-making process. But a number that I use in my paper and that I think is fairly well justified is about $417 per ton of carbon dioxide emitted. And that's a lot, that's also a lot of money when you think that, you know, it, you're, you know, it, over the course of a general anesthetic with desflurane, depending upon your fresh gas flows, you may very well be emitting equivalent to a ton of CO2. So, so I think there's moments where it can be justified, and and I'm I'm seldom an absolutist on anything, but I think 
in general, we should be asking ourselves to convince ourselves why desflurane is the right drug as opposed to just choosing it as an acceptable option. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And and how could we do that? I mean, are, one obvious way would be to not have it on the machine and to have to kind of go get it specially if you have a reason to use it. Um, uh, but tell me, what are your approaches or thoughts on how we could discourage the use of Desler? So there's there's some studies out there that have shown that simply educating makes a big difference. You know, really talking about this, talking about it from a cost perspective, talking about it from an environmental perspective. Uh, really letting people understand the pharmacokinetics of of it, understanding how quickly it does work and how quickly it doesn't work when it's the optimal setting. So education, I think, is one way. The other way is just taking the vaporizers away but making them available. I tend to think in a situation where your equivalent is pretty good. I mean, sevoflurane is a pretty good alternative to desflurane. It functions fairly similar, especially over shorter cases. I think it's I think it's fine. And, and the, the manner in which we addressed it at the University of Virginia was to really, we've got still about five vaporizers hanging out on machines, but the vast majority of them went into storage. And there's a couple that are available for people to request. And we do not use much desflurane. And, and I don't think it's been tremendously missed you know you might get some comments on this from my colleagues who say otherwise but i think in general it's been i i haven't heard a tremendous amount of a pushback but we did we didn't make it available all right we'll be back with matt meyer in just a minute stay with us at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And we were talking about ways to start changing practice around the use of desflurane. Yeah, that's interesting. And and I'm glad to hear that education can help. Certainly, that's what we're trying to do here today. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's the more of these kind of messages that get out, the better. Um, and people are listening. And I'll say, you know, I used a fair amount of desflurane in residency. And then I started to hear both about the cost and the environmental cost. And I never use it anymore, you know, so it is possible to change. I mean, I, I think that's even and we always think it's so hard to change things we learned in in training because it's so ingrained, but I think it is. And I think people are willing to do that, especially if they have a good reason to. So let's talk a little bit about how this fits into the greater picture of kind of healthcare's impact on health. So this is an example, obviously, of something that is having an impact on the health of our planet and that we can do differently. How do you then zoom out and look at kind of the greater system and other, other issues involved here? Absolutely. So, so I think, you know, and 
so I start with this is that a lot of a lot of my my discussion is about climate change and carbon dioxide, global warming. And I realize that oftentimes that's considered to be a politically loaded topic. You know, I, I run into that. I personally, I, I try to be as politically agnostic when I talk about this, you know, like conservation is at the heart of what we're doing here. Um, and and I, want, I always point out a study from Pew Research Foundation, which was 2018, which shows it, it surveyed, um, it surveyed people from throughout the world. It was a great research study. And it asked them, is climate change a major or minor threat to my country? In the U.S., 82% of respondents answered it's either a minor or a major threat. So I do want to point out and, and do this to like empower people who are thinking about this to realize that most people, even in the U.S., understand that climate change is in some way a threat to them. And that's, and that's important. And I start with that because you know, I think that, it, that we're seeing the effects of that, especially this summer. You know, in Oregon, we saw 100 and I want to say, I, I forget exactly the numbers, over 100 people died from heat at the end of June. We're seeing incredible destruction in these wildfires. We're seeing flooding in, um, in Germany. I mean, we're, and, and this is just what's being publicized on the, on the, the media, the climate is changing, weather is being impacted and people are being hurt. Those people, when they are hurt, those people, when they have problems, when they have asthma exacerbations from the forest fires and the smoke, when, you know, they're having mental health because their livelihood has been destroyed from a, from a fire. These people are being helped by the healthcare system. You know, like what we're doing is we are we are their front line. We are there to help them. Healthcare system as a whole is not completely innocent in regards to its contribution to pollution. As, as is apparent to any of us that are working in it, we use a lot of energy. We use a lot of materials. Um, Dr. Jody Sherman, Dr. Matthew Eckelman have done great research in this field. They're also anesthesiologists you might be familiar with. Um, Dr. Jody Sherman's at Yale. And they had a, they had a publication in Health Affairs that, uh, Health Affairs, Health Affairs, um, that, that identified the healthcare sector as contributing to 8.5% of U.S. emissions, um, which is a pretty significant amount. So those emissions are contributing to uh, climate change. They're contributing to patient, to, to patient, to global population health and harming global population health. And then we're consequently, as a result of these uh, issues from the fires, from the floods, from the asthma, we're using more, we're exacerbating acute on chronic conditions. We're using more healthcare resources and we're generating more waste. And so what I really want to focus on is I'd like to I'd like to take the healthcare sector in general and to bring us to the front of this, you know, to, to not, to not just treat the patients, but be at the cutting edge of protecting our world and protecting our people and protecting our, our environment. Um, and I think we can do, I don't think we can do, I don't think we can eliminate all of our waste, but I think we can do significantly better. And I think doing significantly better feeds into a lot of things that we can do 
from a holistic health perspective, you know, whether that's from an environmental justice perspective or that's from simply, you know, simply which doing what's right and like reducing the impact on acute and chronic diseases. So that's how I make this connection, you know, and, and I encourage other physicians to like, don't just, don't just take what I'm saying at face value, like really dig into this and look into it, but realize that like, you know, medical waste, when it goes into that red bag, it's usually either sterilized or incinerated. um, And then it's disposed of. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of pollution that happens behind you know, like outside of the clinic and outside of where we spend most of our time. Yeah, really interesting. And, you know, I think that's, it's so easy to get in the mindset of, you know, the there's not much I can do, right? Global warming and the global climate, it's, it feels like such a huge thing. And the idea of one individual being able to make a difference feels challenging. And I think a lot of people don't either don't know how they could or don't really see the connection between their actions and what what could be done. So we talked about uh, the, you know, just measuring waste as being an important piece of the puzzle of getting there. If people are interested of thinking, you know, kind of what can I do, or even maybe somebody who's in a leadership position, what can my department or my hospital do? You know, what advice do you give to people to start making a difference in a way that you know, can, can matter. So I, I, I can't remember who said it, um, but there's a quote out there um, that says that, you know, is um, I'm, I'm not going to give it justice, but essentially never doubt that a small group of people can make change. In fact, they are the only people that do. And, and so, you know, I say, first of all, you're not alone if you're interested in doing this. So go find the people that are, interested in doing this with you and get support in that direction, whether that's, you know, in your hospital um, with the sustainability committee, most hospitals do have them. If they don't have one, create one. You'll be surprised that once you start talking about this, how many people see things differently. And, and this really, especially when you look at this from a pollution aspect, this cuts across um, political divides. You know, no one wants pollution. Everyone likes clean water. Everyone likes clean air. Like, so don't be afraid to talk about it in those perspectives and, and realize that, you know, the only way, you know, it's, it's how do you, you know, again, another one of these uh, uh, sayings, which is, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You, you take the first bite, you know, these are huge problems, but if no one's taking the first step at it, then we're never going to get there. And so that, so in terms of a framework for how you address these major problems, that's what I, that's where I start. Green health. I don't have, I, I did, I spoke at their conferences here, but otherwise don't have any attachment to them. They're a nonprofit that looks at and essentially works with institutions to benchmark pollution and to collate good ideas, share them and to help people institute uh, sustainable and efficient practices hospital-wide. They hand out awards. So for administrators who are interested in, you know, something to promote their hospital with, they, they do a really nice job of that. And, and it's a good community. People in this community are generally interested in sharing ideas. That's one of the best ideas. That's one of the best parts of this is people want, they, they're, they're mission driven to reduce pollution and they want their idea to spread as fast as possible because they're, that will achieve their goal best. 
and generally people are very open with their thoughts. Um, I also want to recommend, there we go, the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. There's a lot of statewide organizations uh, that focus on climate and health. I'm a member of a steering committee of the Virginia Clinicians for Climate Action, which is underneath uh, this organization. There, there's also Healthcare Without Harm, which is more of a national, international uh, pr- program that that works in this world. Those are the organizations that I'd recommend joining. For really the high-level administrators, what I want them to do is start talking about this. Start thinking about the meaning of sustainability and efficiency to their clinicians and to their patients. I think people will be impressed at how important of a message this is to people, whether it's bringing people in the door that you want to hire or it's bringing patients in the door that you know want to have their care taken at you because it seems that you as an institution care about something bigger than the bottom line. I really think that these are important messages for um, people these days. And, and also start talking to your general purchasing order, organizations, the GPOs, start asking them questions like, hey, you know, like, do you have sustainable options here? Is this recyclable? Do you have reusables that are, you know, designed intentionally for, you know, durability and cleanliness, sterility? Um, you know, really get people, generate the buzz, get people talking. And, and administrators also, I would love them to look at other industries right now, because I do believe that the healthcare industry is lagging behind other industries. Other industries are, you know, you look at, look at the automobile market right now, you know, like the, the manufacturer, I mean, just, I think it was yesterday or two days ago announced that they're going to have 50% of their cars are going to be electric by 2030. That's eight years from now. You know, these are, these are the, the automobiles, you know, this is responsible for like almost a third of, I don't know, somewhere between a fifth and a third of uh, greenhouse gases in the U.S. They're making that move. Healthcare ought to be out front. Because we're the ones that are are treating these patients, we ought to be out front, and I'd love to, I'd love to see us get there. Yeah, that's such a good message and important goal. Let me ask you a couple of kind of specifics that people may wonder about in their day to day practice. So, if you wanted to make the environmentally best choice, would you use Tiva every case, or how does propofol stack up to Sivo or ISO uh, in terms of its environmental impact? So Dr. Jody Sherman, I believe, is the author on another great paper that looked at this. And again, all, you know, you, there's always levels that you can descend to. But from a greenhouse gas perspective, there's no match to propofol, even when you consider all the plastics that are involved in the creation of that. It's a fraction of the um, – it's just a fraction of the greenhouse gas by orders of magnitude uh, better than um, – better than any of the volatiles, including sevofluorine. So sevofluorine is about as 10th as bad at two liters of fresh gas flow. And, you know, I don't, I, we can get into the compound A discussion, which um, doesn't really exist, but uh, even at two liters of gas flow, it's significantly better than desfluorine. But even if you were to willing to cut sevofluorine down to about, you know, a half liter of gas flow, propofol is still better. Even if you're like okay. essentially closing the circuit, propofol is still better from a greenhouse gas perspective. Okay. Um, and I, I haven't mentioned nitrous. We haven't mentioned nitrous, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention nitrous. Nitrous is terrible as well. It lasts in the atmosphere for 114 years. So just think about that. Like any nitrous you let out there is well is going to be living there past 
you know, past any of us. Um, so things to think about is, you know, really using the least amount of gas flow that you, you can to reduce the impact of these volatiles and the, and the anesthetic gases on the, on the atmosphere and on the world. Yeah. And I think I remember learning, but correct me if I'm wrong, that nitrous is actually, in terms of the, you know, the units of carbon dioxide is actually much worse even than, than DES, right? It's, it's like horrible. You're getting into like a very nerdy argument in this field, but they're both bad. Um, they're, they're both bad. And I wouldn't, um, I did a calculation and I think, it, I think a liter of nitrous is, my calculation was like the equivalent of driving like 1.3 miles. So, you know, like just think about how far you're driving when you turn it up to 10 liters for 10 minutes at the end of your case to wash out your test flooring or whatever you've got, you know, like you're really, it's like, it's like driving 50 miles. And you yeah. know, for those of us who are conscientious about stacking our trips and not driving in excess, you know, like we can make a much larger impact by just really being thoughtful with our behaviors in the operating room. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Now we talked about your company and the technology you're developing, which may well have an impact on this in the future. Are you aware of any other innovations that are coming about? You could imagine, I mean, this is probably kind of pie in the sky, but an inhaled anesthetic that has, that just dissolves and doesn't have any impact on the, right, on greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. So some, I mean, is there any movement towards developing things or maybe even something on the horizon that will help with this? So this is my call to everyone out there. Like, I, and I, I, I'm, I, I try to write this. I try to talk about this. I think there's incredible opportunity in this world. Um, I think, I think health systems are waiting for people to do this because efficiency and sustainability go hand in hand, usually with cost savings. And that is a lot of times one of the keys to the purchaser's heart. So like the creative minds out there, the people who want to tackle this, like there is market opportunity in terms of what, what's actually out there. So first of all, I talk about the application, which comes out of Yale again, is like the third or fourth time I've mentioned her name, but Dr. Jody Sherman is part of this Yale gassing greener. It's an app that's out there. So if you're really interested in thinking about how to make your um, anesthetic plan efficient, use that, take a look at it. So that's an application that's out there. It's been there for a little bit. That's something that's currently on market. So, uh, and say that name of that again, Matt, it's Yale grass oh, and greener. Oh, sorry. Yale gassing greener. Um, and if you Google that, I think the app is available to download online. Gotcha. It might be in the, it might be in the store, but yeah, Yale gassing greener. Okay. Um, so there's a, so there's a system that is, out there in theory, but not commercially available, is having something capture the anesthetic gases and then allow it to return to a plant that can then extract those gases and use them again in anesthesia. I, I believe there's something out there that captures them and allows them for reuse in veterinary sciences, but I don't think it's FDA approved to actually use in uh, like back in in our population. Hmm. It, there's, there's a company that's marketing something like that, but I don't think it's actually approved, definitely not approved in the US at this point, I don't believe, but I'll let them talk about that. That is the ultimate, you know, like from an anesthetic gas. And then we can, then we need to look at how much energy is involved in the creation of the item that captures it. And, you know, is it a sophisticated, you know, chemical process or does it require a lot of energy to reconstitute the volatile anesthetic on the other end? And so, you know, these are always the layers that you've got to peel back when we're looking at it, because 
well, in good intentions might not prove to actually be the solution. Um, so that is something that's out there just in terms of like this, this, and this is, this is like a tribute to the circular economy, which is, you know, you use a product, you have a destination for it and you can either reuse it or have another application for it. That's the ultimate goal. So that's one thing that's out there. There's a website that I'm still trying to sort out, but that I do like, um, and it seems like it's fairly new. I think it's out of Newfoundland. It's healthlca.com. And this is aggregating healthcare-related lifecycle analysis. So this is when you're asking yourself, is, you know, is, you know, X greater better for the environment than Y? They're aggregating all that data and putting it together in a database. I don't know if it's quite up ready for prime time, but the website is up at this point and it has some examples that are there. And I'm, I, I keep checking in and emailing them to try to get more because I think it's a great idea. Uh, we talked about the stuff I'm working on and then, you know, and then, like I said, the, the last bit is just, you know, there, there's huge market opportunity out here for someone. And, and I'll tell you that like, the best part about my project, the research that I'm doing is I'm getting to work with really young and really smart and motivated people. And uh, it gives me faith that this is, that we have solvable problems and we have people who want to solve these problems. So I encourage people to dig into this. There is energy at the grassroots and I think starting to be energy at the leadership. I mean, there's certainly some institutions, your, your institution itself is, you know, is doing really nice things in the sustainable healthcare world. There's a fair number who others that are, are, are as well. So I encourage people to be creative and dig into it, make it yours. That's great. And it's really exciting that it's really wide open and, and just, as you say, kind of ripe for people who are creative and, and motivated to deal with this. So that's fantastic. Matt, this has been great. Anything else you want to touch on before we move on? Um, I think one thing that I, as I was talking about nitrous, I also recommended, I also realized that I didn't mention anything about regional and neuroaxial anesthesia, mm. uh, which probably have as low, if not lower footprints than the other options. So keep that in mind too, that though, you know, I mean, what you can get done with two cc's of bucivacaine and a spinal needle is amazing. So, you know, and those, those are options that exist. So yeah, I think I've, I think I've said what I want to say. Fantastic. Well, this is great, Matt. Thank you. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Is there something you've been checking out a book, a podcast, a movie, a TV show, something you'd recommend the audience take a look at? So, I, I, I think I might be slipping in two recommendations here, but I was initially no dead set on recommending um, this book that I just read, which was, which is extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth. It's written by um, Avi Loeb, who's the uh, chair of Harvard's department of astronomy. And it's about the appearance of Muamua, which is the first known interstellar object to pass through our solar system. And his message in that book is that you've got to trust your reason and keep an open mind. Um, and I and I love that book. I've been handing it out to people actually in my in my research lab. I've given a couple of copies to people as they graduated. And but, but but upon introspection, I realized that what would be more on brand for me is that I recommend people just go out into nature, go for a walk in the woods, go to a farm, appreciate what we have out there. Or better yet, do all of it and go pick apples or peaches, which are in season down here. And that's what I think I really would love if people take my advice. You know, just get outside and do something that's that's COVID safe these days, but also gets you back in touch with 
you know, some, some, some things that I consider to be very magical, which is the fact that we can, you know, we can find animals alive in the woods and we can, you know, pick fruit from trees and eat it. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great recommendation. My wife has gotten very into gardening and it's really wonderful. She's just growing all kinds of fruit and vegetables in the backyard. And, you know, it's really fun, especially for our kids to see what goes into growing food and that that's where food mm-hmm. actually comes from, not necessarily you know, the, re- the grocery mm-hmm. store shelf. So I think it, it's a nice thing to do. Yeah. The, uh, my recommendation um, is uh, much less ideological, but um, I think uh, fun. <laughs> Um, I have, I watched this show a long time ago, but am now going back and rewatching it all. And it's the office, the, uh, the, um, Steve Carell version of the office, which, you know, I had forgot. It's just so entertaining, you know, it's just really, really funny and light. And, and, you know, you can, they're short episodes are about 21 minutes. So you can slip one in on call in between calls or whatever, you know, if you're not quite ready to go to sleep, you just watch an episode and it's, it's really a lot of fun. So if you have never seen The Office, I would highly recommend it. And even if you have, think about going back and watching it again. Totally, I totally agree with that recommendation as well. And someone already took Ted Lasso from a few episodes ago. But similar, just something light to watch and you know get your mind off some of the how heavy the world is at times. Absolutely, Ted Lasso is absolutely one of my all-time favorites too. Um, Well, Matt, thank you so much. This has been great, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate all the time. Thank you. All right. This was great. Really important stuff. I mean, we're talking about our world and our environment here, and we can have a bigger impact than maybe most of us think. So let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw. We're at ACRAC Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and join the conversation. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking for Jed Wolpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and already become patrons. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to our amazing ACRAC team. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And our production assistants are Dr. Kimia Kashkuli and Dr. April Liu. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Matt Meyer, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.